0: In the mental health field, too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head if
1: the landlord can hijack the rent by twenty percent. That impacts people's mental health. Can't
0: have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy.
1: Hello everybody. Welcome back to It's Not Just In Your Head. I'm Max.
0: And I'm Harriet.
1: Big thank you to First Winter, Sarah Turner, and Rebecca Johns, three particularly particularly appreciated patrons and we appreciate all our patrons and today we have a very special guest and we're very excited to be talking to him he's uh dr roy grinker who we will be referring to as richard moving forward and he is um so for me personally i I have a my undergrad in college was cultural anthropology so i just have this like yay i'm so happy to be talking to an anthropologist kind of vibe myself just so uh, folks can, oh, and if you listened to two episodes ago, we were talking about some of the concepts from his book, which we'll discuss more in a moment. But so um, so Richard's area of expertise includes psychological and medical anthropology, uh, disability, stigma, autism, ethnicity and nat- nationalism, hunter-gatherers, and the areas of the world that he focuses most on are... Africa, which is a continent, but Africa and Korea, and um, yeah, he's he's a cultural anthropologist. Which we don't tend to. Just as a sort of editorial note here, I think in the mental health field, whether you're in uh, clinical psychology, psychiatry, therapy, social work, I my opinion is that we don't we almost like don't know that anthropology exists, which I think is a huge problem in our field. So anyway, I'll just I'll stop being gaga over. Richard, and just say <laughs> um, thank you, Richard, for, for yeah. coming to our, our program. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have a, a series of, of questions for you, but I don't know if you wanted to, like, if there's any kind of opening things you want to say, if we should just jump into it.
2: Well, I think that I would um, just like to tell people that this is written for a general audience, that it's Mm -hmm. supposed to be accessible. Uh, Though I'm a professor, uh, I'm at the stage of my career where I'm starting to write for uh, a bigger group of people. So it doesn't have a lot of jargon. It's not a thick tome Mm -hmm. uh, for for the specialized. And it's a positive book. It's a book that says Mm -hmm. that we're making efforts very uh, very successful efforts, in my opinion, to reduce the stigma of mental illness, to break down barriers to care. And the book really addresses the question, if we can identify the factors that are improving things today, well, then we can reinforce them.
1: And. In- My apologies. I did not name the book. I should have named the book. So uh, Richard's book, which is incredible. I just mentioned a moment ago, I've not read it cover to cover super thoroughly. I've skimmed the hell out of it. I'll just keep using that phrase. And it is really incredible. It's called Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the the Stigma of Mental Illness. And I also think that I think you're pretty careful with your line. I think you're, I agree with you in that it's positive. It's you don't even be seeming to, well, <laughs> we'll just get into it, actually, just through the sure, questions. Because sure. like, there's, cause there's stu- you know, capitalism, wars, there's all these things where you could sound like you're almost being political or something that I actually think you're very, uh, you're very even keeled in your analysis and you're you're not like soapboxing or anything, which I think is um, skillful. So,
2: so, you know, one of the things that, that um, always happens to me when I do speak to folks like you about mental health is they say, Oh, we didn't expect an anthropologist <laughs> yeah. to be talking about yeah, yeah. health. I wonder if it'd be a good idea for me to just sort of say what anthropology is. Yes, what is anthropology? Anthropology—it's it's like big word. Yeah, you know, anthropology uh, is a lot of things. That's why I went into it because I—it was one of those disciplines where you could do whatever you wanted to and still call yourself an anthropologist. If you wanted to study human evolution, you could. If you wanted to study Peruvian textiles. You could. Uh, the, the point is that uh, anthropology is the study of what makes us human, um, whether you focus on biology and nature or whether you're focusing on culture. And I'm a cultural anthropologist. And what that means is I study other cultures in order to see how they give meaning to their world and how they do it in ways that are creative and innovative. And essentially, the field of cultural anthropology denaturalizes human behavior. It says, we're not hardwired to have you know, this kind of gender relation. We're not hardwired to have this or that kind of political system or, or religious system. We create it. And so anthropology offers a kind of critical perspective so that we can look at the things that we take for granted in our own world And critique it and see how we constructed it. And if we constructed it, of course, we could change it.
1: Do you think the fields of cultural anthropology and kind of psychology at large, do you think they overlap much and why or why
2: not? Actually, anthropology started in the 19th century as somewhat of a psychological field to try to understand why it was that people in the world thought different kinds of things, why people behaved in different ways. But they diverged significantly in the early 20th century when anthropologists wanted to study groups and collectivities and Mm -hmm. the psychologists were studying the individual. And it's great that you asked that question about the relationship between psychology and anthropology because it's a fraught relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. We know that societies are made up of individuals, and we know that individuals think and behave in ways that their society teaches them, and so there's always this complex relationship between the two that we're struggling with, between the individual and the collectivity. It's a, it's a, mm-hmm. but it's a very productive tension. Mm-hmm. It's what mm-hmm. makes our field so interesting.
1: Okay. Here's a a thought experiment question for you. So 1,000 years ago, like we're going back in time 1,000 years, we're going to a totally randomly selected non-European culture where the following so-called disorders present, schizophrenia, bipolar 1, autism, narcissistic personality disorder.
2: Well, great question. (laughs) Uh, We don't know. Uh, What kinds of emotional distress and what kind of symptoms existed in the past. Um, but what we do know is that every society has a way of conveying emotional distress. Every society has a way of conveying mental illness. Let's just take a single example of the stresses of war. In World War I, Soldiers expressed their traumatic experiences and they they responded to great emotional stress through physical symptoms. They didn't describe their distress emotionally. They didn't say, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm sad, I'm, I'm, I've lost interest in my hobbies or whatever. They They said things like, I can't move my arm. Or they walked in strange ways. Or they were mute. Or they even had impaired hearing or vision. Now these people experienced the stresses of the war in a way that made sense to them and to the doctors to whom they were describing it. Sigmund Freud said that there was something called the sense of symptoms, that you're not going to experience any kind of feeling unless it's experienced in a way that makes sense to you and the people around you. So you go a few decades later to World War II and people are saying they're anxious and they're they're, they're scared and they're having nightmares. Those are probably the same stresses of war, but they are differently expressed because of a different time period. So if you go back 5,000 years, yeah, there will be people with all kinds of mental illnesses, but we don't know if they would look like the way mental illnesses are today. So
1: in your book, there are three sections with kind of subchapters. It's capitalism, wars, and I think mind and body. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So the first, so like uh, the first third is about kind of capitalism's influence on this whole thing. So, I mean, what's, did capitalism create mental disorders as we understand them? Uh what, what's the role? Why, why did you spend so much time talking about capitalism and its influence on our conceptualization of mental illness and such?
2: Well, I think we could substitute the word society for capitalism as well. The point is mm. that in any society, the values and the ideals that people hold at any particular moment in history are going to shape the way in which we value or devalue others. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that we live in a capitalist society. So if we're going to understand the way in which we think about human suffering, the way in which we think about what's shameful, what's valued, what's not valued, it makes sense to look at capitalism. There's no way you can live in a capitalist society and not have capitalism pervade so many of the ways that we think and feel, Uh, which is something, of course, that has become called neoliberalism. There are a lot of people who think neoliberalism is a pejorative word. I don't particularly find it pejorative. I think it's descriptive. It means the way in which ostensibly non-economic phenomena become defined or given meaning with an economic logic. As when in my own university we give more money to the chemistry department than the English department because scientists bring in more money. Or when you have charity navigators telling you, don't donate money on the basis of your emotions or your interests. We're going to tell you which charity gives you the most bang for your buck. And if you're not satisfied with the outcome of your charity, we'll give you your money back. Um, Mm -hmm. So it makes sense also to look at how sickness is thought of in capitalist terms. Mm -hmm. And what capitalism did was it created such an ideal for productivity. That individuals who were disabled in any way, whether physically or mentally, were often brought to new asylums in the 1600s and the 1700s, whose mandate was to care for the idle, the people who did not live up to the ideal of being productive and independent, autonomous, responsible, accountable to themselves, and so on. And Then, once they're in these asylums, for the first time, you've got a huge group of people with disabilities that are lumped together that had never been together before, and all of a sudden, scientists have these large numbers, and they could start to make typologies. They're like, okay, so we've got criminals, we've got the insane, we've got the sex worker, whatever, the beggar, whatever it might be. And so capitalism didn't create mental illnesses, but it created the conditions in which certain kinds of human suffering could be conceptualized and in which scientists could develop the idea that there were certain kinds of illnesses that were distinctly physical and those that were distinctly
1: mental. So is the DSM an objective and scientific document and or to what degree was it born out of a cultural, economic, and political context?
2: Well, the answer to, your first, to the first part of your question is yes and no. I mean, yes, it is an objective document to the degree that it reflects the consensus of the American Psychiatric Association and perhaps, you know, majority of mental health professionals in the United States. But it is a cultural document. It's a historical document. It's one that is not written in stone. The frameworks in the DSM, the patterns of behavior, the constellation of symptoms, are all created at a particular point in time. So if we look at the, the DSM-1, the DSM-2, they were very psychoanalytic. They talked about uh, unconscious reactions to environmental stressors, because that's how we thought about uh, mental illnesses. Um, today, actually causes are removed from the DSM, with the exception of a couple of things like grief and mourning and post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, really the, the document is, is, is merely descriptive as opposed to, to having any etiology within it. Um, mm-hmm. But also the, the, the ideas change. Today we have the idea of a spectrum. And so, you know, if you go back to the dsm four, you either had a mental illness or you didn't. It was this mm-hmm. or that. And now we have this idea of a spectrum where we can sort of move along a spectrum. And at some point, we may cross over into that area where, for example, sadness becomes depression or you know, shyness is actually autism. And it can capture the dimensions and dynamics over time of, of a particular set of behaviors. We also know that sometimes there are diagnoses that go away because they weren't useful or they were useful but now they're no longer useful take aspergers aspergers was incredibly useful at a time when we really needed a less stigmatizing word for autism for those people who were who had symptoms of autism but were verbal and had no language delay but aspergers did its work it helped to destigmatize autism helped to reframe autism along a spectrum and now we don't need it anymore but it's not because there was any new scientific discovery it's that it did its job, and now we don't need it.
1: It seems like the the culture, the culture decided that it wasn't culturally helpful anymore to frame um, phenomena that way.
2: Well, you know, the, the, I should say, I should add to this too, Max, that you know the the doctors would say, oh well. We we got rid of it, not for cultural reasons, but because it just turned out that even the best neuropsychiatric testers couldn't reliably distinguish between the subtypes of autism. And that was true, but that's true for for almost every mental illness. Uh, You know, uh, the rise of autism diagnoses in England, some argue, was occasioned by the retrenchment of the state under Thatcher, in which people were being kind of left out. Of the welfare system mm. and having a diagnosis of autism gave you at rights and gave you right. funds and programs that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And so people, you know, tended toward that. I also tell um, examples, I give examples in Nobody's Normal of how symptoms can change through the diaspora. So when Hmong refugees who experienced horrible, Um, suffering uh, in the um, Cambodian genocide, uh, when they came to the United States, they didn't report nightmares or flashbacks. I mean, those are kind of classic symptoms of PTSD. Right. They didn't report them at all. And the doctors wondered why isn't this interesting. Then the doctors asked them, Hmm. this is at Harvard medical school, uh, if they had nightmares or flashbacks and they said, yes. But they never reported them themselves. Why? Mm. Because they thought those were things you would tell a religious leader or a shaman. Mm. They didn't yet see that as part of this pattern that constituted PTSD. But the next doctor they went and talked to asked about their symptoms. They said, yeah, I have nightmares and I have flashbacks. Because they had now learned how to conceptualize their suffering in a way that had meaning for this new society they were in. It
0: also really is... Indicative of what you're saying, Richard, that every year the opposition mounts to the DSM, which has no ideological explanations, and also changes so that behavior is introduced, so that it's less medicalized, so that gambling is now in there, and gambling is not a physical thing. Right, right. And so that it's slowly eroding from the kind of medical model that plugs into a drug, so conveniently, that it used to be because of political pressure and cultural pressure, which I think proves your point beautifully.
2: You know, I think that um, there is always going to be opposition to any framework that a group of experts produces. Um, And it's never going to fit like a glove. Because society always changes. You know, I I kind of see a parallel to the, um, you know, in the the educational system, right? Uh, Where people have all kinds of diagnoses that don't fit the DSM criteria. Mm -hmm. But that's because the school has only certain programs. And you give the student the diagnosis that will benefit the student the most. Mm -hmm. So my daughter didn't get an autism diagnosis until in her school system until she was in the fifth grade, though she'd been diagnosed when she was two. Why? Because the school she was in didn't have an autism program. So she had all kinds of other diagnoses. A diagnosis is only as good as the benefit that it provides. Actually,
1: on that note of autism, because I wanted to see if I understood this correctly, there was a really powerful passage, unless I misinterpreted it, but it was about um, the prevalence of autism in South Korea in a, a kind of long, like five six year study or something that you and colleagues did. Yes, you, that if I remember this correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the there were you you guys found that there was roughly the same prevalence within the U S. Give or take maybe a few percentage points, except that the there was almost no diagnostic or treatment approach in the way that the West would conceptualize it, like get in, assess, diagnose set a treatment plan, except that the culture had, this is, this was my read a more accepting and adaptive and maybe in quotation marks treatment um, of, of um, what we would call autism as a, as a diagnosis that you guys were finding that, I mean, some people were just sort of left out. They're really miserable. It like was not a fun thing for them, but you mentioned something called matchmakers in Korean culture. And just that there were elements within the culture that sort of, um, how would I put it? Like, like the culture s- sees the problem of people who maybe are like different or are suffering in a, in a way that you could categorize, but the treatment is cultural rather than say like medical or professionalized. But I don't know. Is that read of that section accurate or did I miss something?
2: There? No, I think, I think it's accurate. I think what I would add to it is just how, um, much of a disjuncture there is between what a society wants to see and what a group of experts coming from another society see when they enter into it. So, I mean, here's the thing. In South Korea, autism was rarely diagnosed when we started our epidemiologic research in the early 2000s. And so if you were to look at the records of schools or hospitals, clinics, you'd find very, very, it looked like a very rare disorder. So we thought, hmm, what if we actually don't pay attention to records, but we actually look at every child in a town? We looked at 56,000 eight to 12 year olds and we found a prevalence of 2.64%, which everybody said was nuts. Because mm. how, could, how could there be that high a prevalence rate, particularly at the time, the prevalence rate in the United States was only about 1%. And we mm. thought, no, we think, that we're actually doing something accurately and better than they are in the United States, because the CDC was coming up with its 1% or 1.2 or 1.4% figures on the basis of records only, not because they're looking at actual human beings. We thought that instead of the rate in the United States creeping up, the rate in the United States was creeping up toward a more accurate rate given the current criteria of autism. And we're seeing that now. So the rates are, are now thought to be, you know, 2% or higher, just as we predicted. The other thing, though, about South Korea, I mean, they move so fast. And whatever they do, they move incredibly quickly. And that's one of the things about Korean society. Um, when I first, as you noted in your question, when I first um, started working in South Korea, uh boy, autism was so shameful. Um, Mothers were blamed. Mothers often took the blame because they didn't want bad genes to be responsible and they wanted to, Mm. you know, they want to hurt the marriage possibilities of their their other kids. So they said, well, I was just a bad, cold refrigerator mother to Mm. this child and I caused that Mm. autism, taking the bullet for the rest of the family. But then in a matter of a few years, autism became a very different sort of thing. Are you familiar with the TV show The Good Doctor mm-hmm. in the U.S.? I'm not. Harriet, are you? No, I'm not. Well, it's a, it's a show. I think it's on ABC. It's, it has been a very successful show about an autistic doctor in the United I mean, States. But that was a Korean show. Uh, that was a Korean television show. I mean, to go from seeing autism as shameful to seeing autism as involving strengths in some individuals and genius even it was an extraordinary transformation and today you're seeing autistic characters in korean television shows and and there's just a a whole series that i just binge watched called uh, it's okay not to be okay um, which is about people with mental illnesses and including autism
1: I guess, okay, I'm going to, this is like a not written down question because I'm, cause I'm I, I think that what you, what you found from this study is so profound and, and is probably over the heads of, <sighs> I don't think the mental health field is is prepared to understand this though, unless unless I'm taking too much from this, but it's that going back to the DSM question of like, are did capitalism cause mental illnesses? Are mental disorders real and everything? Like we, we could say that like, well, yes, autism's real. But if if within a culture, how, how do I frame this? Um, there, when when we talk about a diagnosis, we're just talking about like a cluster of experiences we can describe, like maybe in a list, and we can sort of say yes or no, it fits for an individual. And it almost seems like like autism, as we're, we're calling this thing autism, can only be a problem in a society if the society makes it a problem, if that makes yeah. sense. I think right?
2: that's so, the way I yeah. put it. I mean, in, this, in the same way, I'm sorry to interrupt me, you know, in the You're same interested. way that we could say that a, a person who's differently able and uses a wheelchair is only disabled if there are no ramps or elevators. Right. So I think it's just so
1: hard to, that, that entire conceptualization, like that actually, that's almost the opposite conceptualization that I think in our mainstream, because the mainstream just says like there are sort of within the individual, there are these, whether it's biological or whatever you want to, however you want to explain it, it's, it's sort of being caused by the individual or it's just being experienced by the individual. And it's completely decontextualized from society. And your findings kind of were saying that the society actually is a sort of central focus, I guess. It's
2: yeah, just, I mean, I'm not saying yeah. that people weren't suffering. But yeah. they didn't conceptualize that suffering as autism. And even when right, right. even when our clinicians um, diagnosed um, people with autism, the mothers resisted. I published an article with a Korean colleague in which we found that mothers were, and fathers too, but mostly mothers, were adop- had, had sort of come up with their own new diagnosis called border children. Mm-hmm. they were not yet ready to say their kids had autism so they were they they described their kids as on the border of autism mm-hmm. um and this is particularly useful for them when their kids were socially challenged mm-hmm. but were de- were getting decent grades mm-hmm. um they could say well it's not a pervasive developmental disorder um but we need, we, I mean, we need diagnostic terms, right? We need diagnostic frameworks in order to do- drive treatments. So there may be some people with autism who are in the high-tech world and with, with um, uh, computer technology like we're using right now mm-hmm. may be mm-hmm. capable of functioning pretty well in the world and, and, and being pretty happy. But there are also people with autism with intellectual disabilities and seizure disorders and self injurious behaviors and who are non speaking and need lifelong 24 7 care. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: We have to have frameworks to make sure that we have care and treatment for people with these serious symptoms. You mean you mentioned gambling earlier, Harriet? Mm -hmm. Well, gambling itself is not a mental illness. But if that gambling affects your social relationships, if the gambling affects your eating and your sleep or, and and you're, um, not, and you're losing your job and your life is in a shambles because of an addiction to gambling. We need some way yeah. of driving that treatment.
0: We do. And what we, there's this balance, which I think is a difficult balance with the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, between pigeonholing people and not looking at their full human humanity, and also helping people with the areas they need help. And I totally agree with you. I think nothing proves your point better than these studies that were done of engineers that found that over 83% of them had some kind of Asperger syndrome, but it lent itself to relating to numbers. And even in Temple Grand the famous autistic writer, and high functioning person in her book, which was a bestseller, she talks about how the strengths that she got from her autism allowed her to design animal uh-huh. Uh-huh. contraptions that help those animals feel safe by holding them because she right. can identify. And it's kind of Oliver Sacks ish in that you can look at someone's compensatory strengths uh, that come with a difficulty and look at the whole picture of diminishment and enhancement or you can start to pigeonhole and dismiss people and there's that constant balance which is difficult in our culture.
2: You know, I think a related point to this is just how often medicine in general seeks to characterize us in terms of numbers and images mm. um, and not look at the full experience you know uh, you can't see experience under a microscope right you yeah. can't you can't count it and uh, and quantify it and um, you know I think that the important thing to emphasize about the way in which we've been addressing the stigma of mental illness is by is by seeing people's, um, full lives and also seeing the experiences Mm -hmm. of people moving along a spectrum and, and saying, you know, we're all, nobody's normal Mm -hmm. title of that book. You know, Mm -hmm. we're Mm -hmm. all on a spectrum somewhere Mm -hmm. and we're going to move along it. And it's not going to be static. Uh, we are going to be shaped by our childhood and our professions and our social relationships and by things that are not even under our control, like a global pandemic or, you know, which president somebody voted for.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: um, we are going to be subject to more factors than we can ever imagine uh, could be accounted for in a categorical checklist in a medical manual. I
0: I also think that, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a phrase, my father was a professor of pediatrics and I think he said it really well because he said the hardest thing to teach the pediatric medical students is that's a child, it's not a disease. That's a child. Mm-hmm. Deal yes. with a child.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the same is true with with Alzheimer's. You know, when somebody's care, caring for someone with Alzheimer's, and, and the doctor shows them a a brain image or a brain scan, but you know, is it is the brain scan my mother? Is the brain scan my father?
1: That that was that was going to be my next question for you actually because you had some really interesting commentary in the book as well about brain and genetic uh, research on mental problems and illnesses or whatever, and also from what I recall, it was that. Um, and maybe I'm interpreting this incorrectly, but when you were, although it's unfortunate when like say a Korean mother or in Korean society they say like oh it was bad mothering that like created autism. That I, I recall you actually pointing out that the if the ideological explanation is social it actually might reduce stigma even if it kind of sucks for like the mom to beat herself up or the family to beat themselves up but but that from your research once we start talking about well it's a genetic problem or it's a brain problem or it's a sort of biological mechanical problem although it appears to be very scientific because look we have brain scans look we have these molecular biological fancy things that you know technology and smart scientists can show you the numbers or whatever that you i think you were saying that uh, stigma actually tends to increase. Like, I think, I think it was like a, yeah, for yeah. you're, you're absolutely people. right. Right. So, so right. it's like, and this, this kind of goes back to, I think, again, it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around this, but I'm going to use, I'm using sort of air quotes again of objective science, the objective science of brain scans and m you know, um, MRIs and, uh, genetic research that we, there's so much funding and there's so much emphasis in this world now. Mm-hmm. And I think even in, um, some of the current training programs in psychotherapy, where you know Dan Siegel and um, Alan Shore, and there's all these kind of very cutting edge people talking about interpersonal neurobiology and all that, which I'm a, a huge fan of. Gabor Maté talks about this too, uh, psycho So there's this cutting edge, interesting research, um, but it's still there's still a sort of like hegemony and ideology and you know cultural assumptions that are there, which are calling them science and they appear very scientific but there's still sort of cultural explanations for phenomena yeah. and the, and the outcome may be, as you're saying that they could be increasing stigma because they're still decontextualizing context by explaining well, things through brains.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so look, the, the intention is good, right? How yeah. do we reduce stigma? And the leaders have said we reduce stigma by making mental illness an illness like any other illness. If you mm-hmm. had a broken leg, you go to the doctor, if you have a mental illness, go to the doctor. But, um, But there are a lot of problems with that. I mean, first of all, the brain is far more complex than a broken leg. Um, Secondly, most medicine actually does not involve treatment through objective measures. The most common symptoms that people have when they go to doctors are fatigue, nausea, headaches, diarrhea. And there's usually no specific medical finding, you know get some rest mm-hmm. or try this or try <laughs> yeah, that. Drink,
1: drink no, water and stuff.
2: Yeah. There's no lab test for fatigue, right? So, because um, it could mean a million things and you can't measure fatigue. Uh, I think that the psychiatric fields though are kind of worshiping a, a, a false idol, thinking mm-hmm. that, oh, if we want to be really scientific, we've got to be like the other branches of medicine. So let's, right. let's, let's reduce everything to the brain and see everything as a brain disease. There, th- so the intention is good. But the reality is that there's no evidence that neuroscientific knowledge has led to the reduction of stigma. We have an incredible knowledge right now of the pathology and the physiologic processes involved with epilepsy. And that knowledge is shared globally, yet through much of the world epilepsy continues to be one of the most stigmatized Mm -hmm. of all conditions. You know, we have a a very effective treatment in this country for treatment resistant depression, electroconvulsive therapy, it saves lives. And yet the jolt to the brain is seen as so horrible in contrast to the jolt to the heart in the ER drama that's a lifesaver. There's something different about the brain and there's something different about the way in which we conceptualize mental illness. And so in, in Nobody's Normal, I, I talk about some surveys that, that show that the more people see mental illnesses as uh, brain diseases, the more likely they are to be afraid of the person. Mm. When society takes some of the blame, when we see a mental illness as the outcome of a complex set of social factors, as well as genes or, you know, chemical imbalances or whatever, uh, we're more likely to not shame and stigmatize that person.
0: When society
2: takes some of the blame.
0: In the book, The Spirit Level, they show how the the greater inequality, the greater the mental illness. And so Mm -hmm. you know that that isn't because people's brains are suddenly transformed. But every, there are other studies, if you look at the, brain scans that show that every experience you have has a biochemical component and a brain component, so you're constantly changing your brain.
2: Yes, and, and I, th- I think that the, some of the more recent epigenetic literature has been really interesting, uh, yeah, yeah. showing that, you know, that that stresses in one's life actually can be passed on Yes, to another generation through epigenetic means. It's not through yeah. a gene, but through a regulator. Right, um, which is like so it's all you know. We, we're all taught in school that Lamarck was wrong. You can't you, know, you can't acquire. Right. I was going to say
1: he was probably right on some. But, level.
2: They, but to some extent, here yeah. you know Lamarck Lamarck had it right. There are certain yeah. acquired characteristics that can be passed mm-hmm. on to one's progeny, and yeah. you know adverse circumstances, adverse childhood experiences are, are part of that. Yes. When I. I, I could go,
1: I could go on an ACEs rant though actually, but I'll I'll save that for another time. Um, the ACEs is adverse childhood experiences survey. Yeah. Actually, mm-hmm. I, have, I have issue with it on some level, but um, um, I, it is it is good I think if we're framing things as like trauma causes stuff versus brains. I, I do think that's a step in the right direction. But um, but so on this concept of like brains, genetics, science, and you had some commentary in your book as well on like the World Health Organization and the sort of this this was really concerning for me actually thinking global on the global scale of sort of the exportation of this whole framework into every part of the world where you even had a passage where like there were uh, the people within the mental health fields going into you know I don't know uh quote-unquote third world or you know whatever developing countries whatever language we want they were being sort of cautioned to be sensitive to people's cultures but at the end of the day to still sort of shove aside, like, look, if people are going to say that's because of possession of spirits or Mm -hmm. some kind of um, supernatural explanation, we we really should be educating people about the objective science. And that's the framework we need to be using. And so we're promoting the so-called objective science, which again, looks really legit. If you say, look at my brain scans, look at the molecular genetic research. But I mean, I guess I'm curious what your view is on, like, let's say in some smaller scale, whether it's hunter-gatherer or just a smaller scale culture, that they do have a lot of supernatural or mythological or whatever kinds of explanations, right? They don't have the DSM. They have a, a right. you know, this. Like, yeah, well, they have, there's this totally other way of looking at it. And we might say, well, that's obviously objectively wrong. Like no spirits have inhabited your sister. Mm-hmm. There are demons or there's no demons, right? That's, that's a yeah. bunch of mm-hmm. crap. Like here's the DSM. This is what's actually happening. I mean, do you? I think that your your research would show that that a it actually reduce it, it increases stigma for for people to think that way on some level. But, I mean, to me, it actually is really frightening because, um, you know, Wade Davis has been known to talk about the sort of in, you know endangered cultures that so many cultures around the world. Um, but it's like every day uh, an elder. Uh, an elder who's the last speaker of a language dies, or some mm. crazy statistic like that. To me, it's just really concerning because it almost seems like this sort of—I um, don't know—an almost uh, soft power <laughs> imperialist, like soft power thing that's not happening on purpose. Nobody's meaning to do it, but that it could very easily like continue to erode yeah. and erase indigenous well, culture. I don't know. Well, I, I find I tell, being alarmist.
2: Yeah. I, I, I tell the story in the book of a man um, in Namibia that I met um, who has. Um, in the clinic where he goes to get his antipsychotic medicines, he has schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And the people there are pretty afraid of him. Um, And um, 12 miles away in his village, he doesn't have schizophrenia. He does hear voices, Mm -hmm. but he's not considered to be sick unless he's hearing those voices. And medicines are helping to alleviate them. Mm -hmm. They don't blame him, though. They see his sickness is caused by... Supernatural malevolence, spirits that landed in him due to somebody's transgression uh, in, you know, in, uh, in the extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so he's the same person, the same organism, right? But he's framed in two very, very different ways. He's mm-hmm. classified as schizophrenic in the NGO in the little town that he walks to 12 miles once a month. And then in his village... He's seen as somebody who sometimes is quote-unquote crazy, their version of that word, but most of the time isn't. Mm-hmm. And he's not branded for the rest of his right. life with this label. Um, so so the, the, the other issue is that when we start to conceptualize people's emotional suffering as brain diseases, it's a lot harder to see the political aspects of their existence, how their um, displace, population displacement, you know, or how their poverty or how environmental degradation or other kinds of things might be affecting them. And it just doesn't make sense to a lot of people in the world. I talk about uh, uh, the work uh, that's been done in, in uh, Brazil uh, with very poor populations where people are willing to accept the idea of ADHD, but they're not willing to accept it as a brain disease. They're only willing to accept ADHD in children is if it's at least partly explained by the fact that they're poor and discriminated against are and are feeling constant stress mm-hmm. of mortality, of being um, displaced, of being robbed and hurt or murdered. Well, I
0: think it sort of all of these things have a basic caution of separating analysis from the total being that you're analyzing with all the mixture of strengths and weaknesses and existential existence of of that human.
2: And that it's very dangerous to forget. And and in this discussion, in, in in the things that you're saying, in the things that I'm saying, we go back to the beginning of this discussion where we talked about the tension between the individual and the group. Right. We can't just look at the group. We can't just look at the individual. We have to understand humanity as the complex interaction between the two.
0: And we have to understand that there is no humanity outside of social because we're social animals. So that trying to see someone in a totally, in a context that doesn't, recognize that human beings are basic social creatures is a mistake
2: yeah Yeah, i think that's exactly
1: right well so neurodiversity that's a newer term and you have you mentioned your daughter richard um being on the autism spectrum and i'm i wonder how you feel about the term and the concept it seems like it's a bit of a movement on some level i mean does it give you hope Do, do you think it's a sign of um, maybe wider, um, you know, a way of like contextualizing internal experiences? Is it, is it the right direction? Is it not?
2: I think it's the right direction because I think it fits with um, movements to also expand our ideas about what constitutes a meaningful life, what constitutes a meaningful sexual life. we mean, increasingly people are, um, young people are much more fluid in their sense of, of self. And, um, being LGBTQ and um I think that what the neurodiversity movement has done is it has really kind of spearheaded the transformation of mental illness cognitive and behavioral differences into the spectrum
0: mm-hmm. where
2: we understand much more the kind of complexity that you know you Harriet and' we're, tw- were talking about just mm-hmm. a second ago, I do know that there are people who don't like the neurodiversity movement if neurodiverse means no treatment, no help that oh you're just a little different, fine, but then what about my child who needs lifelong twenty four seven care
0: right. Hmm
2: then are they left behind? They can't be seen as neurodiverse, right? Because they really need intervention and care. Well, I'm of the opinion that neurodiversity is a tide that can raise all boats. Yes, me too. If, you know, if the person, a student comes to me and says, so I've got PTSD from my econ class or... Or, or somebody who's socially awkward says, yeah, I'm a little autistic. Or someone who's a neat freak says they're a little OCD. I don't really think that they're ignorant of the seriousness that those conditions can can index. I'm, I'm, they're not, they don't really think they have PTSD, like in the sense of meeting the DSM criteria. But what happens then is that as these words become used more freely and colloquially, we disarm them. We make it less easy for you to use those words to hurt so that when the mother or father of a person who is severely autistic uses the word autism, that word autism is understood more. It's Mm -hmm. less stigmatizing. It's less shameful. It's less enigmatic. Mm. That's my view, at least.
1: (laughs) I mean, I, I, I just started a new client. This was it this week. Yeah, a couple days ago. Somebody that the first, for the first five minutes, they used the word paranoid like twenty times to describe what's going on with them, and it was um, this is sort of like you know totally off the script at this point, but um, I and I was trying to understand because there's like paranoia, like what actually paranoia is, and then there's just like um yeah and then there's like really extreme anxiety and like insecurity like are those people talking about me um right. and, i mean they're they're like di- they're very different kinds of things well this is and why I we guess-
2: need mental health professionals
1: right i guess so i guess so but i think i think it, it goes back to when you said like world war 1 versus 2 where like once the sort of once the jargon was known cuz i think it's it's just it's a double edged sword right it's just there's a there's a blessing and curse to it to once we have all this sort of professionalized medicalized official language where on the one hand people have maybe more descriptive language to describe what's happening for them which is maybe good right because they're not just like i'm tired <laughs> they can actually right. like describe all the quote unquote symptoms but on the other i think there is the uh, sort of danger like what you're saying where i i mean th- this person i was speaking to as well as a lot of others will sometimes just say they'll come in with like dsm words that i right. like i'm actually like confused i'm like wait 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 but what's actually What are you actually experiencing? Like, I'm not asking you to try to show off that you read the DSM like on or Web Web WebMD or something like that. So I think there is there there actually can be a sort of danger to it where like I on some level I think this person are like stigmatizing themselves. I'm still I'm not sure. I still need to meet with them a couple more times to really understand what's going on. But when they were starting to use the word paranoia and they're like, I'm crazy and I'm losing my mind, it's like I'm suffering so much because of X, Y, and Z is another way to say it. But like they were almost trying to use what society, what a judgmental society's language base would be to describe themselves, to beat themselves up yeah. for their suffering is kind of mm-hmm. how I was seeing it. Mm-hmm. And that happens a lot, I think especially with women, women clients that I get, yes. just like constantly trying to find labels to denigrate themselves. And it's so, um, it like hurt. Like sometimes I'm like, God, can we not do this? Can we just like figure out why you're suffering <laughs> and not try to like-
0: Label yourself. Because the labeling is a judgment yeah. at the same time and you want to be able to make a context while exploring a, a totality of a human being rather than labeling them judging them and pigeonholing them which is very dangerous
2: well, and we also know that the labeling can reinforce behaviors that's right right I, I i'm are. one of the one of the more remarkable studies that I, I read years ago was the, um, Smith's The Making of Blind Men. And it's this study of these blind, um, the, a school for the blind. But most of the the students, um, the young men in the school for the blind, actually had some vision. They had some residual vision. They weren't you know mm-hmm. completely blind. But when they went into the school for the blind and had this new label of blind, they stopped using the residual vision they had. Wow. Right. right? So it's like totally, what? you know, it shaped their identity, this one word. Mm. That's incredible. That's so incredible.
1: It but it's not, it's not surprising, because that does go back to the mind body prop that we've been kind of stuck with since, I don't know, Descartes or something.
2: Yeah.
1: That like that that not realizing that I mean the power not in a corny way, like like a new age way, like the power of the mind, but like but there, there there is you can't separate mind and body right like now that you start believing the thing I mean I think you could probably say the same thing about anything that's conceptualized as supernatural or, or something in smaller scale societies that if in our culture if we did actually hold those beliefs to be more true like we you know this could be another sort of thought experiment where like let's if we could just sort of get rid of the DSM or if we could rewrite it so that it had a whole bunch of spiritual language, that's just how we would be conceptualizing our problems, right? you know, and, and, uh, and, and then, and then, and then, and then our, our quote unquote symptoms would be actually experienced through that language and those concepts. And you could, you could call it objective and you could even have rigorous, you, you could create um, assessment tools that are called quote unquote valid and reliable because we would actually be projecting out the sort of belief system into the data. Does that make sense?
2: You know, so, you know, go back to the, um, you know, before the early 70s uh, when homosexuality was yeah a mental illness. That mm-hmm. was a very reliable diagnosis. Ten right. out of ten right. doctors could agree <laughs> that this person who's a man who said he was only sexually affected to men was yeah. a homosexual. Therefore, it was reliable. And yeah, great point. And, and did he desire men? Yes. So it was valid, too. I mean, you're right. Yeah. You could create. Right. You can create all kinds of um, thought experiments that that could upset us.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that show the social nature of the diagnoses in the DSM three, which would give us a little bit of distance from the pseudo scientific idea that you pinpoint things when human beings are too complex for that.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things um, I talk about in in Nobody's Normal is I I give an example, not in great length, but um, from the Salish Indians uh, who are in Montana, where um, they suffer from a lot of depression. But they also see depression as a sign of authenticity because they are so identified with being members of a group that has been so downtrodden, yeah, so discriminated That's against over so many years, and that to be depressed is almost a part of their identity.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and it's
2: not to say they want to be depressed; they suffer terribly,
0: yeah.
2: But yeah. they they also see depression as more than a than their brains, right? Yeah. And so, right. It's, so it's so the DSM criteria sort of work sort of don't work with them.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it has to be taken with many grains of salt, which is so important to our field that doesn't, that may want to look for some kind of absolute cure within the relativity and multiplicity of humanness.
2: So it just doesn't right. work. But
0: now, you know,
2: sometimes, the, sometimes the labels, sometimes the diagnostic categories can be, um, can be used to empower. One'self, yes, you know. So I, I yeah, actually yeah. end I end the book with um, a, a little passage about Hester Prynne, the heroine yeah. of Nathaniel Haw- yeah. Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, right?
0: Yeah,
2: and say, well, what does an 1850 novel about adultery among the Puritans have to do with reducing the <laughs> stigma <laughs> of mental illness? Well. Uh, it has a lot to do with it, because what happens at the end is that she comes back after kind of being in exile for years and years, and she's still wearing the A, the letter A on her blouse. And nobody wants her to wear it. It's like, It's been so many years. Take the A off, they say. Right. And she says, no, 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 I'm going to keep this because it's a sign of my strength and endurance. It's no longer a stigma, she says, and yeah. she uses the word stigma. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, um, it, it's a sign of my, my endurance. And by taking ownership of that word adultery, she kind of redefines it for herself. Yeah. That's a and then over time, as she settles into the village, the other women in the community, when they have problems, they come to her because they know that she'll understand their pain. Yes. That's and a she's, she's transformed that A into, it's like a, a degree in clinical psychology. Right. <laughs> it's a fascinating, fascinating ending of that book. It just amazes me every yeah. time I read it. Okay. We are going to have to end. Okay. At least okay. I am. So I want to say goodbye okay. and
0: thank you, Richard.
2: Well, and thank, yeah, you thank you so much. It's been so fun talking to you.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, this is you. so so great. Thank you so much. Um, I'm I'm doing like these bowing, uh, gestures of, uh, yes. <laughs> appreciation you anthropologist. Thank you. Um, yeah. And anybody who wants to contact us, if you have questions or comments about this episode, or you wanted to uh, maybe address Richard, just email us at it's not just in your head uh, at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, um, uh, it's, uh, patreon.com slash it's not just in your head. And Richard's book again is called nobody's normal. How culture? Oh crap! I forgot. It. Can you say
2: it? <laughs> <laughs> culture created the stigma of mental illness.
1: Culture created the stigma of mental illness. In in really really incredible book. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head.
0: Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader overview. Overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20% of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head, and Capitalism Hits Home are definitely complimentary.
1: And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it?
0: Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, HarrietFraud.com.